Hey everybody, welcome, welcome here to show 118 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from cold Eastern Europe. Hope you are doing well this holiday season wherever you are. Joined here today by my co-host Alec Harris, I believe from sunny Florida. Alec, how you doing? Yes, sometimes work takes me places that are warmer than where I live, so <laughs> cheers to that. Good for you, good for you my friend, definitely jealous. And today, very happy to introduce our special guest, Dr. Gregory Carmichael. Dr. Carmichael manages the Deus Opportunity Fund, a cryptocurrency fund based in Cayman and Puerto Rico. Uh, he has traded derivatives for more than 40 years in the traditional markets. He transitioned to cryptocurrency trading in 2015. His expertise is in managing cryptocurrency portfolios using stock to flow, Bitcoin liquidity floor, also a uh, U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot of 31 years. So lots of interesting things I'm sure we're going to talk about today. Very happy to have him on. Greg, or should I call you Greg or Gregory? Welcome to the show. Greg's good. Great, great, great. Thanks a lot. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining. I hate to do just the stereotypical uh, question to begin, but um, I was actually having a, a bit hard of a time finding some information on your fund online. So I was just curious, uh, yeah, for those that haven't heard of you, um, you know, maybe a little background of how you found crypto and what you're doing in the space. Uh, sure. Thanks for uh, actually asking me to be on the show. Actually, I'm a big fan of you guys for a long time. I've listened to all your shows. So I am a huge fan of the privacy space and a huge fan of cryptocurrency in general, obviously. So I've been uh, very heavily involved in crypto uh, really since 2010. Uh, I was previously a hedge fund manager, uh, long short equity with uh, collateralized mortgage obligations or CMOs, if you're familiar with that terminology, um, many years ago. So it was a long time ago. Uh, a lot of things happened with uh, 2000. Uh, one, you know, and all the all the stuff that happened in New York, uh, and so then. Uh, I really focused on some other things for a little bit, did some gold trading and so forth, and then came back into the crypto space. In 2008, when the uh, banking crisis came around, I was pretty frustrated with the, the way that the, the whole crisis was handled. And so in 2010, in January, I actually read the white paper and was pretty interested in the, the concept, uh, but I wasn't interested in the mining concept. And so I tried to play around with it a little bit and I'm like, that's too hard. I just don't want to do it. it you know, I'm, I'm a trader by nature and I kind of like doing all of the options and futures trading and making that, that stuff work. And at this stage, it was too hard for me. I didn't want to do that. So then I waited for a little while, uh, went through a little bit of a, a nasty divorce situation that ended up in uh, available to go back into crypto heavily in 2015 and 2016. 2015, there was a um, law passed in Puerto Rico that you know, was Act 20 and 22, which allowed for a decrease in taxes and how that would work. And so I came to Puerto Rico and bought a house. Um, in uh, January of 2016. And I was uh, pretty much all in on crypto from that, that time on. So I've been heavily uh, trading my own uh, portfolio for a long time. And then uh, I was essentially retired and a, a couple of guys came to me uh, several months ago and said, hey, we want to start this hedge fund and uh, we think you'd be a, a good person to partner with. Do you think you would come out of retirement and help us do that? And I said, yes. So that's how that came about. Um, there's guys that I've known for a long time. Uh, one of the guys is a, a 
guy named Rob Viglione who started a company called Horizon, which is uh, the symbol is Zen, Z-E-N, that you'll see uh, as a crypto. It's a privacy crypto uh, structure, but it's also a lot of other things. And they do, Horizon Labs is pretty uh, well known and, and does a good job with the uh, NFT production and some of those things as well. They have offices in Milan and New York and around the world doing uh, doing a lot of things, but they're focused out of uh, Puerto Rico because of the tax advantages of being here. So that's a quick and dirty of it. And that's how I got here. Just quickly on Puerto Rico, have you come to know uh, the notorious Peter Schiff while you've been living in Puerto Rico? Oddly enough, I have. Uh, very, very recently, uh, I gave a presentation for a very large number of people in Peter Schiff's house dealing with crypto. So, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty interesting, actually. And I, Peter was upstairs. I said I went out and talked to him for a little bit, but but uh, it, it, there are a number of people. Actually, actually, it was a Tony Robbins group, you know. So there was a bunch of Tony Robbins platinum members who were wanted me to give a presentation on crypto and where we're at. And so I went there and I ended up, I didn't realize it was Peter Schiff's house, but it was Peter Schiff's house that he's renting to these people. And uh, so I went and gave a presentation with him upstairs and me downstairs. And I know he's, he's uh, always so negative on crypto, but at the same time, uh, I think he understands, you know, the, the, uh, the differences in the way things are going for gold and crypto. Oh my God, that is amazing. I mean, that is so, that's just so rich. Do you think he knew that there was going to be a crypto-based presentation to this Tony Robbins crew when he, you know? I don't to, know yeah. if he knew that. He was working upstairs. It's in Dorado uh, in, in the northern part near San Juan. And so the house is in a very, very nice area. It's a, you know, the multi-million dollar condo thing. Uh, and he was upstairs working for a little bit. I just said, said hi to him, went up and talked to him for a little bit, but I didn't get into a crypto discussion with him by, by any yeah. means. And, and the people that were downstairs probably had talked to him, but I don't know for sure. You know, I've, I've given probably four presentations at that house uh, so far. And, and it's been to music people and to uh, people that are interested in the crypto fund and then people that are just interested in crypto in general and trying to figure out what to do. I think he's playing a little game there. I mean, obviously he, uh, he has the ear of many gold bugs and hard money enthusiasts, certainly a good chunk of which has, has jumped to Bitcoin or at least, you know, dipped their toe in the Bitcoin space. And obviously just with the way that his son is interested in Bitcoin and just his continual like head in the sand sort of dense approach that he puts on Twitter, like it's, it's a bit of a game. I think it's pretty clear that he, uh, he's doing it for clicks and likes. And I mean, I, you know, he can say whatever he wants, but uh, he, he, he's certainly not ignoring the space like he makes it. I mean, frankly, he's, he's running a gold fund, right? So he, he kind of has to do some things for his own fund, right? So, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, you know my, my argument, I guess, I, I don't want to argue with Peter because I like him. I think he's a good guy. And I think I respect him as an economist. I think he's an intelligent human being, all those yeah. things. So, sure. so the, the, my argument for, for him would be, I played a little experiment, uh, and in uh, December of 2015, I bought $10,000 worth of gold, $10,000 worth of Ethereum, and $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin at $385, I bought uh, Ethereum at $1, and I bought gold at $1,200. Okay, now let's take a look at how that performed over the last several years. 
it's done a little better uh, with Ethereum and it's done a little better with Bitcoin than it has with gold. So that would be my argument. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That worked out well. It did. So yeah. those are the kinds of things where you just, you know, I, that doesn't make any sense to me if you are not willing to do the experiment. One of the things that I really try to focus on is experimental design and, and the thought process behind things and try to think of, uh, you know, the null hypothesis, if you will, in the PhD world that I came from, where you, you try to go, what if I'm wrong? What does it look like? And, and try to prove yourself wrong all the time. If you can prove yourself wrong, then there's probably a different hypothesis. You need to work on that again. But you're never certain of the next hypothesis without trying to prove that you're wrong. If you try to prove you're right all the time, then you'll, you know, you're, you're patting yourself on the back and just doing the same thing over and over again. It, it works far better to try to prove yourself wrong constantly and then try to help others prove you wrong at the same time. So Absolutely. This is one of the issues, just macro trends that is concerning, which is the whole notion that, you know, reasonable people can disagree, reasonable people can debate is just disintegrating. Uh, and so, you know, as opposed to like challenging hypotheses and having public forums and, you know, inviting new ideas. It's, it's somewhat the opposite. We have it in crypto too, to be honest, you know, there's, you know, pretty fervent factions, but before we continue on this path, I think what the audience is really curious about is as a fighter jet pilot, have you ever been in a 4G inverted dive with a MiG-28? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for Absolutely. that question. <laughs> no, I have never been in a negative 4G dive. And I was keeping up public relations. Yeah, that's what I was doing. So, <laughs> No, but I have had a lot of really uh, fantastic experiences, actually, in the Air Force. I was, uh, I was never more... Uh, happy to be doing something than, than doing that. So Yeah, nice. Uh, so one of the things that I'm really curious about on the Puerto Rico community, and you know, you got in there early um, and have, you know, been there as that community has grown and attention has grown not only to the tax advantages, but just to, you know, kind of the deal flow opportunities of being in San Juan and you know, everyone comes through there and a lot of things are based there. And so, you know, it's hard to imagine um, being in the crypto world and not having some intersection with it, but you've seen that that grow from being you know nascent to what it is now. So can you talk a little bit about you know what what that community likes looks like now, but how it's gotten to where it is? you know because there were some early pioneers that you know shall remain nameless, but um, really put it on the map. And I think it, the trend is positive, right? So what does it look like? So the trend is very positive. And uh, I just came from Crypto Week PR, which was a solid week of uh, various types of uh, presentations, everything from Hester Pierce to uh, Scott Walker and uh, Max and all the guys that are kind of the OGs of, of the San Juan area uh, that have been here for a long time. Uh, so Scott Walker is a part of the Deus Hedge Fund for us. So uh, he and Rob Bigloni are both uh, partners in the hedge fund with me. So there's a lot of uh, kind of the old guys, the guys that have been around since early at the very beginning and have seen lots of projects go up and down and go everywhere. There's 
things where uh, that same group of people that I was talking about before are trying to do something called a lion's den, which is, uh, you know, an equivalent to Shark Tank, if you will, where they take uh, the big players here and then they put them on stage and then they have uh, the young guys present to them with some of their some of their ideas. And we have a ton of programmers here. So our programmers are from all over the world, have shown up here from, like, there's guys from Ukraine, there's guys from uh, every country in the world that are here because of the crypto community that's here. And so it's really building uh, and getting bigger and bigger. Uh, the guys that are here are traveling a lot, so you end up with uh, a lot of the private jets here going back and forth from between Dubai and and back to here. And everybody's trying to figure out how to handle the regulatory uh, environment because the U.S. is so uh, difficult. Uh, and so everybody wants to go, well, we're just not going to be U.S. We're going to not deal with anything that has to do with the United States or anybody else. But this is a place where uh, we're, we're in that space where we're a territory and not a state currently. I don't know how long that lasts, but uh, if that's you know going to be something that is helpful for us, we can you know have uh, some tax laws that are helpful in, in some ways and still be part U.S. And then some places will allow you to be part of the structures because you are a territory and not part of the U.S. Other places say no, so you end up with this weird uh, structure of trying to work within the regulatory frame framework that is just insane in my opinion, uh, but we're we're trying as uh, best we can to to do that that kind of uh, work uh, as a group. And I'd say that there are everything from real estate investors, from uh, you know mortgage developers, mortgage-backed uh, securities guys, uh, insurance companies, and insurance guys that are using these tax structures for uh, collateralized debt obligations or any of those type things that that have been here for the last couple of years. Uh, in general, San Juan is a nice city. It's a nice place to be. One of the things that I like about it is the temperature, obviously. So it's always uh, 81 degrees in, the, in uh, the daytime, and it's like 70 degrees at night. Uh, and it's that way, you know, 365 days a year. You don't really get much variation. It rains a little bit, but not bad. Uh, and we have beautiful clear oceans. Uh, so the water is gorgeous and clear and there's the Puerto Rican trench and things to do. So there are, there are fun things to do here and it is an enjoyable community and it's pretty tight. So there, everybody knows everybody uh, here in the Bitcoin community. Uh, so we're all either you know close friends or we know each other pretty well. So you know when it comes to uh, deal flow or any of those things, when something's coming up, we generally all know. And then we can kind of uh, evaluate that to some extent by who's working on the project and who are the people that are involved in the project and then uh, outside of that, I actually use a company called Nansen AI uh, that I you know, subscribe to as a membership. That there's an alpha group membership, and what we do is the hedge fund managers get on several times a day, uh, usually, uh, and have conversations about what's going on in the crypto space. And so I get a lot of uh, information from other hedge fund managers. 
and I have to provide alpha to that group. So that's part of the deal is we, we provide alpha to each other. So we're doing that uh, constantly within this, uh, within this community. And that combination of hedge fund managers talking to each other, and some of these guys are in Singapore, some of these guys are in Australia, some of these guys are in London, you know, they're all over the world. They're not just uh, Americans or, or those kinds of things. So we end up with a fairly wide variety of ideas and thoughts and what, what people see, and it's updated constantly. So that combination of having uh, varied opinions and varied views uh, with this combination of all of these people that have come to Puerto Rico because of the tax advantages. Uh, they have, you know, they have to hire some Puerto Ricans. They have to buy a house here. They have to do a lot of things to fulfill their Act 2022 or 60. Act 60 is the new act that's been more recent past. So yeah, they have to do a bunch of things and you know, their kids have to go to school here, their wives have to be here. There's all kinds of issues that they may or may not like, uh, but they've, they've tried to make it uh, so that the hedge fund managers really have to be here and can't just play a game and you know, take their jet and land for five seconds and turn around and go back and say, I was there. Um, so it, it's been um, an amazingly good community. Uh, they are buying up all the real estate on the north side, that's for darn sure. So it looks like uh, <laughs> the housing prices have gone through the roof in the last year uh, as people try to uh, buy in the places that they want to be. So uh, Ocean Park and Dorado and some of those places, that's where they all, everybody is. And so it's like little clusters of community and they all stay together. Uh, so, and then we just have constant uh, discussions and meetings about crypto. So we're, we're heavily involved in all of those discussions at all times. Sounds like a perfect time to be there. Uh, can you, I think some point in the past, you told me that there was uh, the genesis of some of the tax advantage laws in Puerto Rico go back to like Hank Paulson or someone who, you know, put them in place prior to leaving office. Was, was that the case or was it someone else? Well, this is speculation on my part to some extent. So I, I'll, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, I'll give you some speculation. So I think it was extremely odd that in 2015, in the summer of 2015, when this regulation passed, first of all, there were, there were numerous uh, agreements supposedly between the U.S. government and the Puerto Rican uh, gov governorship that they would become a state. And so they voted and voted for statehood uh, more than one time and all voted, well, and the majority voted for statehood and then they were denied by Congress. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there were some laws passed that were introduced in by the senator from New York, Hillary Clinton, uh, for changing some of the processes for taxes here in Puerto Rico. I thought that was odd that some of those things would have been uh, done that way. And Hank Paulson immediately uh, was involved in buying a bunch of uh, casinos and things here, supposedly. So I don't have direct access to that information, obviously. So these are, you know, some speculation on my part. But it is, it appears that there was some uh, desire to uh, shield some taxes from the big players uh, here in Puerto Rico, and they kind of forced a way in there. That's one of the things that that I don't like, and the Puerto Ricans don't like. They they really dislike the idea that. That, you know, the, 
you know, I don't know, the, the you know, for, my, that, this is not the greatest terms in the world, but, you know, the white guys are coming in and, and you know, saving the day with their millions, and they don't really want that. You know, they like, hey, we're, we're good. We've, we, you know, we're taking care of ourselves, and we're good. So there's a lot of that that kind of goes on. And Puerto Rico is very... Um, Homogenous. There's there are very few people other than Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. It is interesting, especially I live in the South Side. So if I go to the grocery store, I'm usually the only white guy. There's no there's not there's no other body other than Puerto Ricans. So it's a very homogenous society, and they're very welcoming and they're very kind and they are very respectful. They handle you know I don't have the Black Lives Matter things doesn't happen here. We don't have Trump protests here. We don't have any of those. None of that stuff that happened in the upper states happened. It's all just calm and kind of relaxed here. So it's it's very interesting as far as the political narrative back and forth between, you know, the things that we were talking about before where you end up with, you know, one side fighting another and all those things that just doesn't really occur here. We're more of a separate entity that is really works together well. Uh, so, I, you know, that part of this society, I really enjoy. Um, and I, I think that is a, that's a positive thing. But yes, I think there were some tax things that happened that were forced down here that there are some Puerto Ricans that see Act 20, Act 22 and Act 60 as a negative thing. And that because they don't get that deal. You know, the, the deal is offered to the rich guys from the U.S. who come down to Puerto Rico and take their capital here. And then they have to do things. And so the Puerto Ricans still have to pay taxes. Everything is insider information at the end of the day. <laughs> I hate oh to God. say it, but I agree. Yeah, I like uh, reading Matt Levine's, or Levine, I'm not even sure I say his name. He's a commentator in Bloomberg blog uh, about money and markets, but he he's not really the biggest fan of, crypto and Bitcoin, but uh, he always says that. And I totally agree. And it's interesting to hear those kind of takes because yes, I mean, how could it not be that, um, you know, some tax advantageous laws get passed and, uh, you know, it's just interesting to hear people like Paulson may, may have come down, but um, it's just always the case. It's always the case. And, you know, caveat emptor for sure. When you're, you know, getting involved with, with uh, legislative, legislative things. Yeah, I mean, you don't. The big thing is you gotta play by their rules to some extent. Uh, you you just have to. So uh, it's it's kind of a rigged game, but <laughs> uh, you gotta play by their rules. One other follow up to the Puerto Rico thing, and you know, one of the things that we've talked about over the years uh, many times is privacy and you know what it means to own bearer assets. And, you know, not just Bitcoin, right, but you know, any bearer assets, diamonds, guns, gold, etc. cetera. Uh, anything for which the custody is and the security thereof is in your control. Uh, and so, you know, from talking to you about your setup there in Puerto Rico, you know, you have accrued some physical privacy and, and you certainly live in a digital privacy mindset. Uh, and we've shared a lot of like-mindedness on that. And so as someone kind of in the crypto space, but who also lives that personally? How has Puerto Rico been advantageous to that? Or, you know, is it just as good as a place as any to be private or what what does that look like? I think there's a lot of, there's a long answer to that. So the, the, one of the things that I find, I, I intentionally was seeking 
someplace that I had space. So I was able to come here and buy 40 acres of land and have that be on the ocean and have that be in a place where I don't have a lot of uh, close touching from neighbors and so forth. And yet I'm very close to Home Depot and, you know, Costco and, you know, nice restaurants and all those things I can go to do those whenever I want. Uh, and, and without, you know, much of a drive. So those things are all good, but uh, it is somewhat, uh, especially with COVID, uh, it's, it's been like uh, very hermit-like, if you will, in some sense, in that under COVID, you really can't, I, at least I couldn't go anywhere. I had some health issues, and so I had to make sure that I didn't uh, involve myself with COVID. I still you know, did all the vaccinations and I've been trying to stay as safe as I can with this, but I, I had been in the hospital a couple of years ago and so I don't want to be sick. And so I've been trying really hard, but it's, it's very private here and I'm able to do that. Uh, and you find that there are certain things that are challenging because the addresses here are very different. So you can't get certain things. So you have to have post office boxes in order to be able to get things. People don't deliver mail to the house. Uh, so there's, there's privacy in that sense. People couldn't really find where I'm at without trying to, you know, work at it really hard, which, you know, somebody can do if they work really hard. But uh, those kinds of things are, are valuable to me. Uh, but they're also separating from society. And I do enjoy conversations like this one uh, with intelligent people who I can go back and forth with. And, and I get a lot of that through Nansen AI and other things, but I do, uh, I do value the privacy. And I use, um, you know, your company, obviously, I'm gonna tell that story real quick. I use Halo Privacy as, as one of the security measures for my house. Uh, and I am pretty careful with the way I trade. So, you know, I have specific laptops for specific things and I have Trezor wallets and Ledger wallets and all of those things. And I use uh, copper and flyer blocks and some of the custodial services and so forth to make sure that I can uh, prevent some of these hacks that have gone on in the last uh, several years. And so the, the privacy space is, is great in some sense and bad in others. And I am, uh, I'm very, I find it very important and still challenging all the time uh, to try to figure out what level of privacy I need in what thing and where I want to move that back, that lever, if you will, back and forth between I need a little more privacy in this or a little less privacy in this to be able to communicate more and, uh, and, and do that. So, I mean, if you were, if you go look for Dave's hedge funds, you're not going to find a lot of information. So we don't, uh, we don't really need to do that. We've been, uh, working through our networks here. And so we don't, uh, really advertise much and we don't do any of that kind of, you know, here's a, here's our pitch deck or any of that kind of thing we don't really need to do that so we don't uh, so yeah yeah i'm glad actually you mentioned that I, I mentioned that in the intro uh i was just curious myself so that is a privacy uh concern that's the reason uh you know you're not you're not such pr'd like a silicon valley or a wall street hedge fund right we're just not interested in a lot of attention to be honest with you we just like it to be 
the people that know what they're doing and are willing to do stuff with us, and I, you know, I can go give a presentation and tell the investors exactly what's happening and how it works and why and all that bit. But I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, shill something or sell something to them. Uh, it's it's their choice. Yeah, I mean that that ethos though is um, it's hard to maintain sometimes, and I don't think people who have, you know, there's there's a whole cohort of people who talk about privacy and the reality is it's like privacy theater um just you know the same way there's like fitness theater or, or anything where you you know you wear the outfit and and you, you know you have the sports shake or whatever but you know you're not living that lifestyle and the same is true for anything and i think privacy is actually there's a lot of offenders in that category um and i i think some of it is that when people find out how much work it is to actually you know you would think that the easy thing is to just not try and then you won't have any, you know, signature and, you know, by just not intentionally having a high profile that you won't have a profile. But the reality is the kind of baseline these days is that you're very discoverable, you know, that, that all of your information is accessible for a few bucks, if, if that, right? And if you want to get a lot of information on someone, it, it doesn't really take a PhD to do it. Uh, and so that the, the effort side of it is in trying to mitigate all that. And what happens is people get tired or they're hungry or they've just been doing it for a long time and they slip. And so, you know, someone like you who just kind of has been maintaining that for a long time um, and, you know, where it's like, hey, it's, it's actually not easy to not have a large presence on the Internet um, like you do and just kind of stay under that radar. And so I think that's maybe a little underappreciated for people who haven't tried it. So um, but it's well worth it. Uh, and there's a peace of mind that comes with it, just like having good locks on your doors or standoff on your property or whatever it is. Um, you know, the I sleep easier at night knowing that, you know, certain information is it's not impossible. Right. I would never say that, but very difficult to discover. And I think you're in that category. And, and you know, Matthew, too. Right. None of us here. Are, um, you know, posting aerial shots of our residences on the internet. Good shout out to Halo Privacy, though, regardless. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank <Yes>. you, yes. <laughs> Cheers to that. And I am I am a huge fan of that. So the Halo Privacy thing, uh, I will shield that one. I think that's, a, that's an excellent... Uh, people don't understand how important that is, really. And that process that Alec uh, uh, uses and how that works is one of those things that I have a great respect for. So I would say uh, of all of the things that I uh, am doing, that's one of the most important things to me in that, you know, I, I've thought about doing some, you know, mining of crypto here and doing all that kind of thing. I haven't done any. I've done, I've thought about it a little bit and I've done some API trading, but but in general, uh, having some way to protect, uh, you know, recently, I don't know if you guys have been following some of the things that have happened. Badger Dow had a $120 million hack uh, about a week and a half ago. And so that I'm involved in Badger Dow. So I do have capital at Badger Dow, but I was not touched. And the reason is it was a front end phishing attack. And so somebody was able to do a front end phishing attack on some guys with some big capital. Uh, and they were successful. And so, you know, those are things that I can prevent. I can't prevent a back-end attack on, you know, a smart contract hack that's, uh, that I couldn't find because yeah, I went through Nansen AI and I had the programmers check it out and it turned out to be there a hole that nobody saw. Okay, I mean, there's, those things can happen. And I can help 
with the front end attacks by a lot of little protocol changes that I do in the way that I handle computers, in the way that I handle, uh, you know, which which uh, browser I'm using, or the way that I handle a Trezor, or a, you know, a Ledger X, or any of those things, uh, or in the way I'm using Copper, or the way I'm using Fireblocks. So any of these different companies uh, can help you with that. But I always I say this, you know, completely, you know, partly tongue in cheek, but truthfully, one of the worst things about running a hedge fund is I'm centralizing the assets. And I don't want to do that. That's the worst possible thing for me to do. But I don't know how else to help the clients through that, especially with gas prices like they are. It doesn't make sense, you know, when you're, you know, if you're trading $1,000 and it costs you $350 for, for the swap, that's stupid. Yeah. But if, it, if you're trading $5 million and it costs you $350 for the swap, then that's fine. It doesn't matter. So it's, it's all a matter of size and scale and how, you, how you're going to coordinate. And if, if the clients don't have enough size and scale, then you have to aggregate a little bit. And then, you know, I was on the, uh, I was on a Nansen call with uh, Brian Pellegrino yesterday, and he's a guy from Layer Zero. And I, I'm, I'm hugely, I'm a huge fan of Layer Zero right now and all the things that are going on at Layer Zero. So, you know, we were talking a little bit about uh, how that will work within different chains and how that the structure is and how to prevent some of the uh, some of the the possible risks between chain because I'm also I'm on Solana I'm on Avalanche I'm on Phantom I'm on uh, Optimism I'm on Arbitrum all of those different uh, chains have different you know requirements and processes and you could actually do something really dumb by sending the wrong thing to the wrong thing. Uh, and and literally, it, it could be something like USDC, which is stablecoin, if you guys are not familiar, or if a listener would happen to not be familiar with stablecoins, USDC is stablecoins, it's pegged to the dollar. And if you send that to the wrong place on, say, uh, the wrong chain, it could come back as a different structure, something like USDC-E. And then it, there's no market for USDC-E. So if you did that with $5 million, you might not have any money at the end of that transaction. So you, there's lots of little things that can happen between chains that you have to understand and you have to know how, how to work. And it is... I think far too challenging for the average investor to be involved in the DeFi space right now. I don't see how the average guy is is able to handle that. There are a bunch of programmers that can handle it, but the average person is not going to be able to handle DeFi. And we, we had a recent uh, Crypto Mondays or something that we do every Monday where we kind of all get together and try to teach people about crypto a little bit uh, up in San Juan. And uh, Scott Walker was up there talking. He said, uh, you know, I'm just going to make this super easy. DeFi 101, and here's all you have to do. You have to, first of all, you have to have MetaMask wallet. Then you have to have a Trezor. Then you have to have, and he went through like 20 things that nobody was going to be able to do if they're brand new to crypto. If they've never bought a Bitcoin before, there's zero chance they're going to be able to do that. So even the most basic of decentralized finance is is very uh, challenging in order to be able to make the money. 
And you see Three Arrow Capital, you see Alameda Research, Y Combinator. These guys are actually moving billions of dollars all the time. And I can watch them on chain by looking at uh, CryptoQuant or Glassnode or uh, Nansen AI Wall Analyzer and look at who's moving what around and I can actually see it because I can do that within the crypto space. I could not do that within, so I used to be a trader, you know, uh, for a regular hedge fund and uh, owned the hedge fund. So I did a bunch of things with that. I would, I never was a floor trader, but I was on the floor a lot and I had traders that worked for me. So you go on the floor and you go, wow, does that look like Goldman Sachs over there trying to run the market on this? Or does it look like JP Morgan's trying to run the market on this? So you could guess, you know, and see people trying to run things or do things. That's, you know, this is back in, the 80s and 90s and now most of that's all gone but on crypto in our space at this point in time I can see the big wallets move and I can watch them real time I can see what happens in the last five minutes I can see what happens the last day and I can watch those trades and have some idea of what the whales or the big players are doing and they are taking advantage of things I mean a big you know one of the things that I saw this summer that was uh, super interesting to me in, in case you guys haven't really thought about it too much. There's a something called the Wyckoff distribution and Wyckoff accumulation. Wyckoff was an analyst from the 1920s who looked at a bunch of fraud cases and then came up with a pattern that happens for every fraud case. And so that Wyckoff accumulation distribution pattern analysis is, it's always the same when somebody's manipulating the market for some reason. It turned out to be a very, very similar series of of calculations, if you will. And it's, it's, uh, it's something you can overlay and then you can calculate out the, the numbers. And I was able to do that during the summertime when we had this big uh, Wyckoff uh, you know, distribution and then a Wyckoff accumulation to come right back to 65,000. So that was all very, very clearly uh, able to see and do ahead of time exactly what was going on. And that's one of the ways that I was very successful with the hedge fund uh, during the summertime. That's before the hedge fund was actually in, uh, it had started. So we didn't actually start until the 20th of September. But during that summertime, I was trading at, with my own capital and making that work. And so it was just a clear Wyckoff accumulation distribution pattern. And I could take those points and I could do 100x leverage on Bybit or, or uh, whatever I needed to to be able to make that work. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, theory, if you will, and still theory, I don't know anything, but uh, it followed a pattern that has been the same since 1920, you know, so it hadn't changed. It's not like it's, uh, you know, oh my goodness, this is something new. And same thing with stock to flow models. Stock to flow models have been around forever. You know, uh, Plan B just, uh, you know, popularized it for Bitcoin. Uh, so, and it is a regression model. So my PhD uh, buddies would say, hey, it's an aggression, a regression model. It really has no value. It looks at historical stuff. It's, it's invalid. And my argument back to them, because I've had that argument against me several times, and I'll say my argument back is all models are wrong. Some of them are useful. I find stock to flow and liquidity floor models to be useful. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm saying that they are wrong. I 100% gonna be wrong. However, they're useful because they can give you a background or a backdrop anyway for the macro element of this structure. And if, you know, for me, when you go back to the Bitcoin concepts right now, 
I would say, you know, the whole idea that, you know, you look at the money printing and where we're at with all, all the numbers, you know, the dollar, at least 40% of all dollars have been printed in the last year and a half. So, uh, you know, that's a 40% decline in the value of the dollar as far as I'm concerned. So do I want to be involved in dollar assets? No, I don't uh, at all. I would be all in on crypto. Uh, but that's my philosophy. As a hedge fund manager, I can't do that. One of the things I have to do as a hedge fund manager is step back and go, the clients care about uh, the dollar value of assets under management. So the market has to tell me what to do. And so, you know, in the last few days, I've been going back and forth with the Nansen Ag as we end up with everybody's super bullish when, you know, it's at 55,000 or whatever. And then everybody's super bearish when it's at, you know, 42, 43,000 all the way down to 43. 3,000 and then come back up to 50, 46 or 47. And it's been stable here for a while. I don't even know what it's doing right this second. As we're speaking, it was going down as I was looking. But in general, it's been stable for a, a little bit at a low number. Uh, so does that mean it's all over? No, I don't think so. And if you go back and look at uh, what you could have done, you could have bought Bitcoin at every high. Just every time it, it gets to the top, just buy Bitcoin and then just hold on to it and you're fine. So, you know, if you did the, the sensible thing that I try to teach the, the people of Puerto Rico that don't have money to lose, they can't invest in general, have never had more than $50 in their bank account. I try to get them to say, you know, just buy a little bit of crypto whenever you can. Uh, if it's once a month, if it's once a week, whatever that is, if you can buy $100 a week, $100 a month, and buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. Just do a couple like easy things. You know, don't don't go into, you know, I found this new NFT, you know, metaverse thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's going to go to a gazillion. Well, it might, you know, and, and it very well might. But you're probably better off with just a, a long-term dollar cost averaging strategy, especially if you're not a trader and you don't have any inside information and you're not going to go to CryptoPoint and you're not going to go to Glassnode and you're not going to go to Nansen AI and sit around with the, the rest of the hedge fund managers and talk for hours at a time every day. So if you're not willing to do those things, then you shouldn't probably do that, you know, that trading portion of your Bitcoin. If you, you should just dollar cost average in and hang on to it. You're making, you're going to make 233% per year since the beginning of Bitcoin. So you can easily do fine just holding it and not and just pretending it didn't exist. You know, you're all right. That's great advice, um, especially dollar cost averaging. Um, that was my sole strategy from 2018 to 2020. Um, but I wanted to go back to something just as a comment. So I completely agree with you on so much of the ecosystem being challenging and just like unnecessarily arcane and it's because it's new right this is not a criticism of every project out there but the thing i offer to people who think they're crypto savvy and they think they understand these projects is don't just go to the website and you know follow the twitter account go get whatever it is that they claim to have and try to do it right i don't care if it is it's like you know converting eth to wrapped eth to buy something on OpenSea or buying a you know domain name or whatever and see what that ecosystem is like because you're 
pretty unlikely to be pleasantly surprised. What you're going to find is that there's slippage all over. There's fees everywhere. There's, you know, there isn't the disintermediation. There's actually rent seeking along the way. Um, and that it's complicated and things fail. And so you're going to spend, you have to look at it as a hobby and spend an afternoon on something and see if you really see maybe merit in the future, right? What is the, is there utility in this for me? Something like that. Um, but just kind of like the superficial look at a project or buying into the hype, you're, you're going to not do well with that strategy frequently. You know, I've been through so many market cycles, right? So I, I was trading in 73, 74. I was trading in 87. I was trading in 2000. You know, I've been through these cycles before. It seems very similar, right? So you end up with this end where, you know, even on the Nansen AI call, so they're all talking about how uh, this particular NFT structure or these these ones are going to do really well because there's a floor of their value based on something that I don't understand. So every time we go into these things, I go, I, I don't understand wh why you think there's a floor to the value and where that's going to be. I don't think that exists. And so eventually, you know, anybody that was through 2017, 2018, a lot of these things went to zero. I mean, really to zero and stayed and they never come back. And then some things do come back. You know, I, I was a holder of uh, Polymath. So Polymath, I bought some Polymath in uh, 2019 after it had gone way up and way down and I bought some Polymath and kept it, you know, even though it was worth very, very little, I just held it. And then I added a little bit to the position over time because I like the guys at Polymath. So whatever, but it, it was not a great investment at the time. And it's still, those are just huge risks, huge, huge risk factors. And then the same thing with all of these NFTs and these metaverse plays, I am such a fan of the metaverse guys and the NFT guys. I want them to succeed. I want them to be the best that they can be in the space because it adds an enormous group of people to crypto. These are gamers and people that may never have gotten into crypto before. And some of these people are in the Philippines where, uh, you know, they're they're making more money by making money in the game than they would by working all day. So there are there are places around the world where that's happening. And I I think that is just huge for crypto. If if we can get to the point to where the unbanked and the un uh, the underbanked and unbanked around the world are involved in crypto and, you know, especially places where, you know, things are difficult or, you know, you don't make any money or, or any of those kinds of things. I, there's an opportunity there for people to make a lot of money for themselves. And even if it's, you're going you know, to make you know, $500. That's a huge amount of money for some of these people. So, you know, I'm, I'm for the NFT space. I am for the metaverse guys. I talk to them on the Nansen AI calls and I say that. And yet as a hedge fund guy, I am a finance guy and I'm focused on things that are more interesting to me, you know, that uh, I'll throw out some weird technical stuff, but if, if anybody's familiar with the CAPM model and the, the concept of a security market line and, you know, uh, sharp ratios and all those kinds of things that we would usually use to build a portfolio. So uh, if you're using the, the typical portfolio modeling structures, you need a risk-free asset. And that risk-free asset would normally be something like a 10-year bond. 
But to me, the 10-year bond is one of the riskiest, ridiculous assets I could imagine because it's been printed away at 40%. So there, and it yields zero basically. It might even have a negative yield if things go sadly with the the Fed. It's hard to tell. So it doesn't make any sense for that to be the risk free asset. One of my uh, favorite investors, Rick Rule, he always refers to uh, bonds as return free risk. Right <laughs> there, you go. That's that's absolutely true. So I have thought for a long time. What if? The Bitcoin is not a volatile asset. And I said this on a, on a television interview uh, a couple weeks ago. So uh, what if Bitcoin is not a, uh, a volatile asset at all? What if it is completely stable? And the dollar itself is the volatile asset. So if that were the case, then you would build your security market line based on Bitcoin. And then you would build your, uh, your structure, your portfolio structure, based on a number of risky assets that were relative to the risk-free asset, which was Bitcoin. And if you build that portfolio, which is what I do for my personal portfolio, honestly, that's the way I build my personal portfolio. I don't, uh, the risk-free asset is, is Bitcoin, and the risky assets are all of the other assets that are not Bitcoin. So uh, by doing that, then you change the structure of the way that you look at the world. And by changing that structure, uh, I think you can take a different view and step back away from the volatility that you see and see it from a different perspective. Now, within the volatility that I have in the market right now, as I am managing a hedge fund where I have to care about the value of the dollar, I have to be more delta neutral in my structure in order to keep the value of the assets under management in dollars at a reasonable number. Because we end up with these 30, 40% declines in Bitcoin, and that's like a Tuesday for us. I mean, that's you know, like, who cares? That's normal. But the regular, you know, guys in the market are going to pull their hair out and, you know, jumping out of buildings and stuff. It's, it's, that's insane for them. So, uh, so, I mean, it's just normal for us. Like, you know, that's, you know, that's Tuesday, whatever, you know, and just go on and you shrug it off. But it is important to keep that under control. And I'm using some of the old school techniques that I would have used on Wall Street in order to hedge those processes with futures and options. The futures and options market, the futures market actually is, is very robust in Bitcoin. The options market in Bitcoin is not robust in any way, shape, or form. And so I've been on the phone with uh, the people from FTX US and uh, Ledger or uh, Ledger and Deribit and all of these guys that are big options players, Hedgix and, and so forth, to try to figure out ways to do this a little bit better. And there are individual places that do uh, uh, over-the-counter options trading. So I can do some over-the-counter options trading with size. So as long as we're you know running in the millions, it's easy to do. But then you know it's it's there's a lot of slippage. It's not very much fun. It's very difficult. You have to really think about what you're doing. Where I used to be able to put on that trade super easy. You know I used to use uh, Think Pipes or Thinkorswim uh, back in the day uh, when I was running a regular hedge fund. And then you know now I can I can do that with Tasty Trade or Tasty Works, and that's the uh, same same people that I used to use back in the day. So, uh, but I can't really do that with Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum options the same way because a lot of times they're settled in dollars or, you know, the, the calls are settled in Ethereum and the, you know, the puts are settled in dollars and you have these weird risk patterns that I can't quite 
you know, structure out the way I want them to, and I can't do the things that I would normally do in an option structure. You know, for me, when somebody says, oh, I want to buy a stock, you know, I would say the same thing. I'm going to say the same thing uh, to that that I would. Uh, first of all, it's hard for me to, to even talk about stocks anymore. But uh, say you want to buy a stock. I want to buy Microsoft. Uh, okay, why would you ever want to do that? I would want to sell a put and buy a call. I build a synthetic uh, structure for Microsoft. So I would sell a put vertical and buy a call in order to have the exact same financial structure as that underlying uh, thing, whatever security that would be. And yet I would not have the risk of owning the security. And if it goes down, then I end up buying it. Okay, great. That's what I wanted anyway, but I got a lower price and I got, I got paid to do that. So usually you can sell things that you don't own and get paid for them and make that work. And so that whole concept in, in uh, finance and financial structuring is just something that most people are not familiar with. And in the crypto space, we're still very, very young in uh, the size and, and robustness of our options market, and partly because of the SEC is telling the guys in Chicago, uh, don't do that. So I'm, you know, we're, we're having trouble with that currently. And like I said, I had an interesting conversation with Esther Pierce just a couple days ago. So we, we just are, are not uh, to a place where we can do that. It, it makes complete sense to me that the Congress and, and the U.S. government should actually embrace some of this stuff to prevent the U.S. dollar from becoming uh, kind of obsolete. They should embrace uh, the stable coins and, and move things forward. These uh, central bank uh, coins are just ridiculous. That uh, whole process of, of lack of privacy and that whole structure is insane. Uh, but that's I digress. That's my opinion. Greg, this is fascinating. You're really making it easy for for us <laughs> pretty much covering all the questions i had <laughs> true i do want to uh still push on a couple of your uh a little bit of your methodology i think this is really really interesting to hear especially if you know for the average retail uh, trader or someone who's just trying to accumulate more bitcoin it was clear what you said about how your personal portfolio is kind of denominated in bitcoin but your hedge fund portfolio is not simply because the volatility and you know legacy and everything else when do you see that's going to come to change? Uh, how big does Bitcoin need to be for hedge funds to be denominated in Bitcoin? I think it can be done now. It's just a matter of are there, uh, it, it, the question is really, are the investors interested in that? So I'd, be, I'd do it right now. I mean, if anybody was really interested, I would absolutely do it right now. I don't know that there are enough people that understand what that is and what that means because you have to accept an enormous amount of volatility. But if you're willing to do, in, in terms of dollars, but if you're willing to do that, the return is amazing. So, uh, you know, that, that concept is pretty darn good. But the same, same problem, though, is this whole four-year cycle. So if, if the stock flow model holds, right, so we should have been at roughly, you know, plan B said 98,000 by the end of November, 135,000 by the end of uh, December, and we're not uh, at that, those levels at all, right? So if I were to run uh, the, the fund based purely on the plan B model, then I would be very, very long Bitcoin and very, very long Ethereum here. And I would be buying uh, futures contracts and leveraging up as hard as I possibly can. 
Now, the problem with that is you could get a liquidation event. So you could end up with a liquidation event and, and the event could happen in a second. You know, so it goes down to 28,000 for 0.25 seconds and then you're liquidated and you lost all your Bitcoin, right? So how, how'd that do? That doesn't work out very well. So there's, there's risk management structures that you kind of have to put into place where you're going to take a little piece of things and go, okay, I'm willing to risk 1.7 Bitcoin on at this level. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lever it up, say, three times or two times. And then if it goes to this level, I might level up five times. And as long as my liquidation risk is around 17,000 or 18,000, I don't think we're going to get there. So, but you never know, you know, would I have guessed that we would get from 20,000 down to 3,000? No, I would not uh, when we did that in 2017, 2018. So I was a holder of Bitcoin through that time frame and I was buying Bitcoin between six and 9,000. So between six and $9,000, I was buying Bitcoin heavily. And when it went down to 3,000, I bought Bitcoin heavily again. And it was really hard because, you know, Tone Bay and all these other guys are saying it's going to 1800. It's going to 700. It's going to go to zero, you know, whatever. <laughs> so all of those people were telling, you know, telling you that it's the wrong thing to do and this is the wrong time. And if you've ever run a hedge fund, all of your investors want to leave when the, when the fund is down. And all of your investors want to invest when the fund is up. That's what they do. So nobody, nobody is, uh, you know, if you watch the big short, the big short, I actually know most of those guys, Michael Blurry and all those guys. Uh, nice. So if you watch the big short, Scion Capital, you know, he's, he's found the right thing, right? So he knows what's going on. He's figured it all out and he's trying to make a security that doesn't exist to, to be able to short the AAA securities of, of mortgages. And so he does that and they're all laughing at him because they think they've just taken him, taken his money. And so uh, when it all swaps around, he, you know, all of his investors are like, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to take everything from you. You got to give me my money back, blah, 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 blah. And that's when he had the, you know, he stood his ground and, and it turned around and he did really well. And so, and he gave the investors back all their capital plus a big gain. And that's typical of a lot of hedge fund structures. You'll see that in, in, in people's behaviors. Um, and so for me, what I have to do a little bit here is make sure that I hedge the Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, structure. And then, you know, when the market's telling me that I have to be neutral, I kind of have to be neutral, even if I don't want to be. You know, I, I'd love to be all long here. This is a great place to buy. I'm going to buy everything at this, this, this stage. But, <laughs> but I can't, right? So I've got to be market neutral. That means that I've, I've got to put in structures that will make money if it goes up or down. And I'm using a lot of stablecoin pools. And some of these stablecoin pools can yield up to 1% per day. So 1% per day on a big stablecoin uh, yield is, that's pretty good, you know, uh, that's yeah. not bad. And it's all unstable. So you're fine, but you're not making 10x, 100x, you know, the numbers that we're all used to in crypto. So we get spoiled in our, our big moves and being able to go, you know, put something in and make 100x and then, you know, move it again and make 100x and move it again and make 100x. 
you know, that's, that's a, a really nice thing to have happen, but it happens once every four years and it goes through this little cycle and then it ends. And then you end up with these 90% drops. And most of these, I'm sorry, kids that are trading right now haven't been through that. And they haven't been through what it feels like to have an enormous drop where everything goes, everything you think is going to go up, your NFTs or your metaverse things or whatever it is, they go to zero. They were at $900 and now they're at 0.009 cents. You know, that's what happens. And so some of these things will occur again. Uh, it's just a guaranteed cycle that happens every time. I wish it wasn't a guaranteed cycle, but it just seems like that's what happens every time. And you can follow it if you're following CryptoQuant, if you're following uh, Glassnode, and if you're following all of the information flow that has to come out. And so, you know, frankly, there's a lot of YouTube videos from a lot of very good people. There's a guy named uh, Rob from Digital Asset News. Uh, he's here in Puerto Rico. I saw him last week at... Uh, uh, at the PR Crypto Week. And, you know, he does a great job of teaching people about crypto. So he's a, he's a fantastic resource. He's one of those people that um, whenever I have somebody come up to me and say, you know, Greg, I heard you know a little bit about crypto. You know, what's a Bitcoin? You know, and, and when we're at that stage, like, okay, Digital Asset News is a website that you need to go to <laughs> and yeah. go through some of their information there so that it can help you understand. And he's going to talk to you about dollar cost averaging and how you can put things in uh, iTrust Capital and all these different uh, different ways to, to protect your assets. But at least he'll give you the information in a coherent fashion that it's not going to be at uh, me talking about del Delta neutral leverage yield farming with uh, Tulip. You know what I mean? So there, there, there's a level of, uh, of introduction into things that people take a little bit of time to, to digest. And then there's also the, you know, the, the wild stuff. You know, if you want to know about the wild stuff, I'm, I'm your guy for that stuff. If you want to know about how everything works on the wild side, I am definitely at the far end of trying to understand all the different yield farms and where they're at and trying to keep up with them every day. <laughs> We actually may have to put a pin in that one just because, well, at least for my own understanding, it's, uh, it's quite, quite limited as far as all that goes. But it, a comment in relation to what you're saying with all of that, because it's just a lot of great stuff here, Greg, really, really interesting. A lot of people think about this a lot as far as the value of your portfolio. Is it denominated in Bitcoin? Is it denominated in USD? You know, some people want to denominate it in ETH or whatever. But um, I do have a follow-up question to this, but just a comment what you're saying about the risk, not only because of, uh, you know, what you might be able to get for staking a stable coin or staking Bitcoin, but obviously you got to put that on an exchange or on some sort of a hot wallet to do that perhaps. Um, or maybe you don't. You do that, generally. That's, yeah. That's, that's one of the things that Bitcoin has taught me is like really, really to evaluate your risk on a deeper, deeper level, all the way back to the cap M model, as you said, like what really is your risk-free asset? And it's funny, you know, like, cause I came over to Eastern Europe, 2006, graduated university. And, you know, from 2006 to 2008, everybody here in like poor Eastern Europe, which was growing and growing legitimately, but also had a lot of infusion of capital from Western markets, you know, everybody in Eastern Europe just thought they were genius. And it was the same stuff was going on in the US, you know, like real estate bubble, too much capital, people taking loans out on their summer homes and their regular homes and ninja loans, all that stuff. And 
it's just so interesting to see the cycles repeat and uh you know that story just like you said the younger people have to sort of figure out for themselves cut their own teeth themselves on those uh you know history doesn't always repeat but definitely rhymes but the interesting thing with bitcoin i think from someone who's like fiercely risk averse and wants to protect their assets for their family or whatever is like it really does allow you to change change the game as far as your risk is concerned. And I've wondered myself, I mean, I've seen some attractive staking yields on some platforms, even in Bitcoin terms, but I wonder what is attractive enough in case they, you know, lose all the Bitcoin, you know, like if, even if you get 15%, you know, if you lose the principal, it's game over. So it's a whole different way to evaluate risk. I think crypto and Bitcoin compared to even the financial world of, you know, of your, but like definitely everybody figured that out themselves. I mean, I, I worked for a boutique real estate firm. They all thought they were doing great until <laughs> you realize your liabilities are higher than your assets in 2008. So like, it's an interesting lesson that's learned again and again and again, but Bitcoin is just a hell of an escape valve, I think, from all of that, if you can manage your Bitcoin appropriately. Definitely a good point. And the thing is, what you would want to do, what I try to get people to do, and it's hard with small small portfolio. So that's again why aggregating a portfolio is awful and good at the same point, because I don't want to have a bunch of assets in the same location because it becomes vulnerable. Uh, at the same time, I gotta spread things out. And if I were advising you and you had, let's say, 10 Bitcoin and you wanted to, you know, try to diversify your portfolio or to, or to make yield, maybe you take one Bitcoin. It's, I can never sell a Bitcoin. So I, I can't ever sell Bitcoin. I take worthless fiat dollars and I go buy something else, right? So yeah, I like that view. I just can't, I can't sell a Bitcoin. It's really hard for me to sell a Bitcoin. I can, I can short Bitcoin. I can uh, use options and futures against Bitcoin, but I just can't sell one. I just can't do it. So um, for, the, for the rest of the portfolio, though, if you want to take some risk, it's a good place to go, you know, to go to some of these yield forms. But you have to understand how they work and why they work. And that's not easy or clear. Uh, and so it takes time and effort, uh, like I said before, to do that. But you would want to size your positions correctly. So that's the key. You know, so you go, okay, I'm going to keep all my Bitcoin uh, and I can do that and put that on a Trezor wallet and keep it offline, right? So then I'm cold storage and I'm good to go. And I just leave it alone. Great. But now you don't earn anything. Currently, there's enough banking structure within this DeFi yield farming protocol stuff to be able to make quite a bit of money. So you need to have something out there that's yield farming, and you're probably going to take some ETH, and you're going to buy that, and you're going to go. That would be my first thing to do. You know, buy a bunch of ether, put that on your MetaMask wallet, and you're going to go out and yield farm. And you're going to need some USDC or some DAI, something to keep it simple and easy. One of the ones that I use, I'll just share with you right now, is something that's been on Frax for a while. I share this with uh, the Nansen Aegis recently, uh, is uh, Frax and M Stable. So Frax and M Stable on the Frax protocol is a nice, easy way to do that. That's on the Polygon network. You can put that together and you can earn yield up to 54%. So, it, you know, you're earning 54%. It's pretty stable. It's pretty easy. It locks for seven days. It's only for seven days, and you can unlock it and do whatever you want. Uh, so 
Those are easy things to do if you are interested in doing those kinds of things, but I, I still think you have to take some risk with the portfolio in order to, to make money in this market, and there's just so much to be made. Um, if, uh, on the other hand, you look at what happened with Badger Dow, that was a front-end phishing attack. So you can prevent those things by doing uh, the best you can with Halo privacy. So, you know, those kinds of things would prevent some of that front-end phishing attack issues if you know what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, and using a Trezor, using a Ledger X, and all of those kinds of things. So uh, Ledger Nano. So if you if you do those kinds of things, then you can protect yourself to some degree. But you have to be able to withstand uh, damage to one particular spot. So far, we have not had anything like that happen. But many of the other hedge funds have. Uh, I've seen several other the hedge funds have had uh, an attack happen that they lost a portion of their portfolio. But the number of attacks that are going on at the traditional banks is through the roof. It's so much bigger than anything that's going on in crypto. We just aren't aware of it. I have plenty of friends at other banks in various locations around the country who are, you know, people from my former former life uh, on Wall Street who have huge staffs of people trying to handle the number of attacks per day at the standard banks. We just don't hear about it. So, you know, all of this news comes out about a crypto hack here or there. The numbers of hacks that are going on at the standard banks is through the roof. And yeah. they are they are intentionally not talking about any of that. But there is there are spaces where you can go find that information if you if you search hard enough. So do you have a link? <laughs> I will find one for you and provide it to you if I can. Yeah, it's a concept we've definitely talked about before on the pod, but it's it's an interesting thing to perhaps research as well. For sure. Yeah. And the dollar volume is huge, too. It uh, is. It's enormous. So, and, and you've got like the layers of ransomware matching to insurance liability coverage levels and it just the whole thing is a circus um so uh one quick takeaway is that we probably need greg to come on the pod for multiple hours <laughs> um, but, uh, and there's a couple things i really wanted to get into that we're not even close to scratching the surface on um i have to drop and so um you know first wanted to thank you greg and uh, if anyone out there is monitoring you know lightning uh, no, it's opening up. That's just me sending Greg a tip for all the kind words he said. Yeah, Thanks, yeah. Alec. Hey, everyone. So with Alec's departure for this episode, this actually marks the end of the episode. In fact, uh, Greg and I did go on for another 25, 30 minutes, talked more about his investing strategy with stock to flow and Bitcoin liquidity floor. And a couple other, I think, really interesting topics uh, that Alec presciently said we definitely need to have another episode and talk more with him. But unfortunately, our podcasting software cut out when Alec dropped. For those that are really curious, you might have even noticed that a couple times in recent episodes, Alec has had to drop early. And then even when he said thanks, I couldn't uh, catch that last bit. Uh, but for some reason, this time, it actually uh, bumped us all off. But in any event, I think you got a lot of really interesting content here from Greg, a uh, you know former Wall Street insider, derivative trader, you know really interesting stuff about how the legacy financial system worked and works, 
and how the new Bitcoin decentralized financial system uh, really, really is a contender to change uh, so many things there and really be more equitable for everyone. So caveat emptor, as always, be cautious if you're going to try to leverage your Bitcoin in any way. Keep in mind what <laughs> the points we were talking about there about CAPM, how much your Bitcoin really is worth and how much you want to leverage that risk-free asset, especially in these crazy days. Uh, caveat emptor, as always. But uh, our thanks again to Greg for coming on and definitely, definitely looking forward to having him back uh, very soon to, I think, continue this discussion, talk a little bit more about uh, trading, maybe leveraging a little bit of Bitcoin in order to acquire more uh, if one is so inclined and how you could do that uh, in the space these days. But as always, uh, be safe out there. Really, really hope you all enjoy your Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, holiday season, um, wherever you are in the world. And that uh, 2022 is even better for all of us. And uh, hope to see you back in the new year full of uh, renewed vigor and hope for Bitcoin and uh, all that it can do for us. So thanks as always for listening. Take care.